Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you bring your faith into public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio today is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Hey, good morning, everyone. Glad that you're joining us on this great Saturday. Hope you have a very blessed weekend. You can catch us right here at the same time each Saturday on Relevant Radio AM 1330 at 11 a.m. If you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes of The Bridge Builder, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Again, that's mncatholic.org slash podcast. Or find us on your favorite podcast apps such as SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in public life. We also answer your questions through our mailbag segment, and you can always email those to us at show at mncatholic.org or contact us on social media. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can become a missionary disciple by bringing your faith into public life. Our world today, as we all know, uh, struggles with the reality of sin and the effect that sin has in creating social problems. As Christians, we can see that many of the challenges that we face stem from decisions that are not in line with God's providential plan for us. But because of the interconnectedness of social life, one person's decision or sin can have ripple effects on the rest of society. And in fact, these sins, uh, which are never in isolation, can reinforce negative or harmful social structures and lead to ongoing social problems. This is a, a challenging concept for a lot of folks. How can social structures be sinful? Isn't it persons who just sin? Joining us to unpack this issue today is Dr. David Cloutier uh, of the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. He is Associate Professor of Theology there and the author, author of four books, including the award-winning and very fine, I've read it myself, The Vice of Luxury, Economic Excess in a Consumer Age. Earlier this year, he wrote a really strong piece in the public discourse online about the challenge and necessity of talking about structures of sin. Welcome to the Bridge Builder, Dr. Cloutier. Always great to be talking to Minnesotans. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you for that. Uh, structures of sin. What are structures of sin, or another way of saying it is sinful social structures, and, and how are they formed? Sure. But these are structures that incline us to look at uh, the choices that we face in our in our society, whether we do that as consumers, um, as individuals who are, you know, for example, dating, um, or uh, as people in the workplace, that incline us to make sinful choices. That is, they, they present options in ways that make it easier to sin and harder to do the right thing. Um, because most of our actions are not in, in taken individually, that is, we act within larger social structures all the time that hold up our way of life, we, we, we constantly have to grapple with the fact that these structures either incline to make um, the moral choice easier or make the moral choice harder. So what lawyers might call an attractive nuisance, then, in many ways, a structure of sin. You know, Dorothy Day said that uh, we want to create a society in which it's easier for men to be good. Is clearing away sinful social structures, is that kind of what, what getting at that concept a little bit more? Absolutely. I, I think it's a recognition that, that we are dependent on many of these structures. So if I work in a large corporation, I'm obviously dependent on that corporation for my livelihood, 
I, I receive a salary from them. I support my family. Um, uh, and so I am in some way responsible for the activity of that uh, larger body um, as a citizen of the United States or as a participant in a particular economic system. Similarly, I receive benefits and I have responsibilities for the way the structure is set up. Um, so uh, it, it can become quite difficult. Uh, it should be readily apparent. What's the relationship between original sin and the multitude of sins committed by individual persons in each moment and structures of sin? Pope Benedict, in his encyclical Caritas and Veritate in 2009, uh, suggested that original sin is a, uh, it gives us a kind of theological analogy for how to understand the pervasiveness of structures of sin, um, uh, that, in fact, we are born into a world where the structures are not inclined in the right direction, and there, there's a way in which we are all responsible for that. So original sin would be a kind of analogy to structures of sin. Now, when some people talk about structures of sin, it's often uh, folks on the progressive side of the political spectrum objection here from some is that structures of sin is really just code for leftist politics and ignores the need for personal moral renewal. How would you respond to that criticism? Well, I think that that sets two things against one another, as if one has to choose between personal moral renewal and structural change. The encyclical tradition from John Paul II and Benedict are absolutely clear. Francis has reinforced this 100%. These, these, this is a both-and. It's not an either-or. So personal change and structural change are necessary. The mistake here is to identify structural change simply with one party in the American political spectrum. Talking about structures of sin doesn't necessarily mean that the solution to structures of sin are the solutions of a particular political party. There can be considerable argument about what is the solution or solutions, um, but there should be a, a common recognition of the problems. What are some examples of structures of sin, in your opinion, that can maybe put some flesh on these bones a little bit for folks when we're, we're talking about these things? What, what does that look like, uh, for example, in your opinion? Well, I think we can see structures of sin in, in many different areas of life. Uh, in my book, The Vice of Luxury, and also my, my work on environmental ethics, I think especially from the perspective of the consumer. Are, are we willing to think about the kinds of larger structures that support the consumer choices that we make? For example... Today, we have many choices related to food that involve trade-offs between, for example, saving a little money for ourselves and doing something that treats workers in a, in a genuinely just way. Um, uh, that kind of trade-off, though everybody has particular circumstances that can, can, can make this difficult, um, that, that, that kind of trade-off should lead people to think, hey, I need to make choices that support the structures um, that aim at the dignity of the worker as opposed to structures that give me the best price 
So that, that would be an obvious example that everyone confronts in their daily life. But there are many other examples, racism, environmental issues, uh, but also issues of sexuality, as I discussed, uh, Catholics who want to be faithful to church teaching and date in today's world face innumerable problems in trying to navigate a, a dating world where everybody has different ideas about what's appropriate. Is it the case from your perspective, Dr. Cloutier, that we're just so marinated in individualistic conceptions of uh, our being and human anthropology, um, homo economicus, one might say, that getting our head around structures of sin, the idea that we're really born into a web of social relationships is just sort of a foreign concept? Yes, certainly in contemporary American society, individualism is a problem that it only gets worse. In Amoris Laetitia, Pope Francis headlined extreme individualism as the thing that is at the heart of our problems uh, with marriage and family in our society. This is certainly true about economic issues, environmental issues. A key difficulty that we have is that we tend to think in terms of individuals and then in terms of extremely large and often alienating social structures. I live in Washington, D.C., and Washington is a kind of symbol to people of social structures, but usually, regardless of party, it's a negative symbol. Um, one of the things that the, the Church has consistently encouraged in its documents but has not evangelized sufficiently is the importance of focusing on intermediate associations. I had kind words uh, about Minnesotans because I'm well aware that Minnesota has a civic culture where people contribute to the common good at local and state levels in a way that is really exceptional in the United States. Uh, there's a kind of social capital in Minnesota that's available and that people need to to replenish. They need to look out for the common good uh, and not just for themselves. But that does, again, not mean just who are you voting for for president. Thank you for saying that. And that's right. Minnesota does have this long tradition of uh, intermediary associations and a can-do civic spirit. Uh, you might say it's like the gift of our German and Scandinavian forebears. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, you talked about Pope Francis and his encyclical Laudato Si. How might that uh, afford some practical wisdom and perspective on some of the challenges of structures of sin within our society? Laudato Si's core concept is um, an idea that Francis calls the technocratic paradigm. It's a very scary word, but whenever I present on Laudato Si, I have to highlight it because he calls it the anthropological root of the crisis. And it is a, not a critique of technology per se, as if we should get rid of all technology. As he says, nobody is asking for a return to the Stone Age. Rather, he asks us how our structures distort the way we use technology in such a way that instead of using technology to help nature flourish, we use technology in a way that is, is destructive of nature, that maximizes what we can extract from nature, rather than recognizing the fact that nature is a gift given from, given from and by God uh, with certain purposes. Um, so the, the 
the technocratic paradigm labels a particular structure of sin, uh, a structure of technology in this case, that distorts the way in which we interact with the natural world and increasingly with human nature. There are many parallels with the way that smartphones and various kinds of technologies are clearly distorting human nature. People, I think, today, Dr. Cloutier, seem a little bit overwhelmed in the sense that some actually have a very acute sense of the structures of sin and the way in which um, we seem to be cooperating with injustice and sinful social structures, whether it's through our consumer choices, our professional choices, the false choices that we're given in the political sphere. It's almost like it's unavoidable that we're cooperating with structures of sin. Is there any hope of disentangling ourselves from this web? Um, yes, there is hope. Um, we, we have to answer that that question uh, emphatically in terms of hopefulness, but not by minimizing the problems. So I want to affirm the first thing you said, which is that people can feel overwhelmed. In one sense, they should feel overwhelmed. If they if they don't feel overwhelmed, they haven't grasped some of these problems. Um, on the other hand, feeling overwhelmed can often lead people to feel disempowered, that there's nothing they can do, and of course this leads to hopelessness and despair. So we, we have to affirm, on the other hand, that there is great hope, especially if Catholics work together on issues. Um, uh, one of our mistakes is to think that we can address these problems of social structures of sin on our own, we will be quickly overwhelmed, though we are called to do what we can. Um, rather, we need to develop ways in which parishes, dioceses, various kinds of Catholic groups stand up for uh, what's right and uh, address these structures of sin forthrightly and collectively and build alternative structures of virtue, as some theologians call them. What are some examples of those alternative structures of virtue? I, th I think that's right. And uh, as, again, as Dorothy Day said, we've got to build a new world uh, within the shell of the old. What, what are some things that you're seeing or that are giving you hope or some concrete things that, that people are doing in this regard? Well, I used the example of food before and uh, as, a, as a negative example, the food economy. And I think the food economy also shows, shows many signs of hope, signs of hope that wouldn't have been there um, a decade or two ago or would have been very small. That is, people are unusually conscious of where their food comes from, what kinds of conditions uh, uh, workers might have experienced or even animals. Um, certainly some animal rights act activists go way too far, but there is Catholic teaching about treating animals in humane ways that is routinely violated in the food system. So the fact that there is gr much greater awareness and also greater visibility uh, to structures of uh, uh, getting our food in ways that are good for the earth, good for uh, the people who raise the food and and good for the animals involved uh, that that's all that's all uh, uh, a great sign of hope um, and we need to think about other areas of uh, the economy and social relations where where we can bring that hope 
Diving a little bit more into the question from the lens of public policy, what might be some practical political things or uh, two or three key areas that you would highlight that are particularly harmful that might be addressed through public policy means, structures of sin that we can address and remediate through public policy? I think the most important public policy choice that that we can make is to to re-incentivize our economy away from consumers and towards workers. There's some very innovative work being done, and it's work that is kind of post-partisan. It's not clearly identifiable as left or right. That suggests that the American economy for, for, for decades um, back to back to World War II has centered on trying to maximize the ability of individuals to consume, and that there are different ways, for example, to structure tax codes, to structure various kinds of work rules in ways that will actually emphasize the importance of good productive work, stable work that holds together communities, that often holds together families. Much of that can, can be done at a, at a state level, doesn't have to be done at a federal level, to try to incentivize stable, long-term, productive, fulfilling work, as opposed to, as opposed to encourage maximum consumption, which usually means lo the lowest possible prices at the consumer end. Um, so I think that's an example of something that can be pursued in the public policy realm that would address particular structure of sin. You've mentioned consumer issues a number of times in this conversation, Dr. Cloutier, and you've also written a book about the vice of luxury, and perhaps there's a connection there. Um, for those who might not be familiar with the vice of luxury, because probably 99% of us have never heard a sermon about it, uh, what <laughs> is the vice of luxury? And, and introduce this concept to our listeners. And I know you, it's a whole book, but you know, give us yeah. your elevator speech and, and how these two are connected, the vice of luxury, consumer choices, and structures of sin. Well, y'all may not have heard a sermon on it, but you've certainly been hearing a lot about it in the gospel, second half of the Gospel of Luke, which we've been hearing in the lectionary week after week, uh, which, which really hammers home the idea that people who are immersed in pursuing wealth um, and fine goods in the world, are uh, their salvation is in deep danger. Um, and this is a perspective that has been shared throughout the Christian tradition, um, in Greek and Roman philosophical traditions, but has largely been lost over the past century. And my book tries to suggest ways in which we absolutely need to revive this, not only for our individual souls, which again, I think it is obvious for many biblical readings, but also for the good of society. That is to say, we need to redirect our economic activity away from simply getting more and more goods that we don't need, and redirect that economic activity towards social solidarity, towards various ways in which we get the goods that we need, and we build a stronger social fabric while we're getting those goods. Yeah, ostentatious displays of wealth, that was just bad manners uh, back in the day, right? Um, <laughs> that, that too, but here again, uh, uh, you know, Midwesterners, and particularly upper Midwesterners, have, <laughs> have internalized that perhaps in a way that, that many others have not. 
Indeed. Well, we're grateful for the time you've taken today to unpack this uh, challenging issue of structures of sin, and you've really helped us uh, understand it, I think, in a more coherent way. So thanks very much, Dr. Cloutier, for joining us. He is the Associate Professor of Theology at the School of Theology and Religious Studies at Catholic University of America and the author, author of The Vice of Luxury, Economic Excess in a Consumer Age. Thanks again for joining us, Dr. Cloutier, and uh, God bless you and your ongoing work. Thank you, and thanks for highlighting these issues. We'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. And now it's time to delve into our mailbag segment to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our producer, Kit Cross. Kit, what have you got in the mailbag today? Yeah, so this week's question from the mailbag is probably one that a lot of listeners can really relate to. Oftentimes we find ourselves disagreeing with our elected officials on any number of issues, We've all been there, whether it's a disagreement over their public stance on an issue that maybe it goes against church teaching, or maybe it's even just a smaller disagreement on a matter of prudential judgment, maybe the way they voted on something. So today's question is, what is the best way to go about approaching our elected officials when we have a disagreement with them? How can we both be evangelical and build bridges when there's a disagreement, large or small, you know, not just attacking them? not just arguing. Well, I think that last part of your question is is the beginning of the answer, attacking them. Uh, I can tell you how often attacking a legislator or a public official really works. It's almost zero. <laughs> so that's the first premise is that we have this paradigm in which we want to, quote, hold legislators accountable. You know, we're going to tell them what they're going to do because they represent us. Um, and that's true. We, they, they do represent us, and we do need to communicate with them and let them know that if they do the wrong thing, if they don't promote policies that uh, support human dignity and uphold the common good, then we're going to consider other candidates um, and uh, let them know that uh, we're dissatisfied with their work in office. And we can, in fact, should do those things. But there's a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that. I think the first way is to get out of this idea that um, politics is a power game and that we're going to impose our will on them. And that's what that really is signaling, is that when we, we're going to, quote, hold them accountable or tell them how it is, we're going to impose our will on them, which is different than allegedly what their will is. This is not a productive dynamic. If you're one of maybe five or six organizations in the state of Minnesota that has the significant political clout that really can impose its will, on elected officials, well, then I, I guess good for you. But for the rest of us as citizens, uh, the way to think about politics and our relationships with legislators is one of service, that they need us as a resource and they need us as friends. We're not always going to agree or disagree, um, but it is our right and our responsibility to give them feedback and to share with them about our perspective on important public policy questions. But to do so with the hand of friendship and collaboration and then not this idea that uh, you're going to impose your will on them by, quote, holding them accountable, which you may or may not be able to do, depending on how many friends you can get to vote for or against this candidate in the election cycle. So, of course, they want votes. Um, they know that if 
five or 10 people in a community are concerned about an issue, that means about 50 or 100 people are actually concerned about it and are passionate about it. And uh, 50 or 100 people in a legislative district in Minnesota who are upset about an issue, that can make a big difference in a, an electoral campaign. But again, there's strength in numbers for sure, but there's a right way and a wrong way to go about that. Are we approaching this question through a lens of service and to be a resource and to be friends with our elected officials? Or are we approaching it through a power game? And the power game, I can tell you, 95 times out of 100 is not going to be a productive dynamic. You're not going to persuade hearts and minds. You might make yourself feel good by zipping off a nasty gram to an elected official, um, but rarely does it have a positive impact. Oftentimes, it just builds up bigger walls instead of builds bridges. And that's, of course, the very title of our show is How to Be a Bridge Builder. So how to be a bridge builder when you disagree with an elected official is to listen first of all listen to them and get a better understanding of why they support or oppose your position on a particular question then you can tailor your response accordingly what is it that's driving them uh, in this position is it a faulty premise and i've had many conversations with legislators in which they've embraced a position based on faulty premises and then have to rethink that uh, later on um, supply them with the right information if you don't think they're getting the right information we'll get them the right information um, have a conversation, share your views. And it might be the case that you might not ultimately come to an agreement, but the fact that you and 10 of your friends from the legislative district have expressed this concern might uh, weaken this, the support of this legislator for a particular position, uh, maybe get them to stay a little quieter on it, or, or maybe rethink it altogether. So there's a really a productive way to go about this conversation and a less productive way. And I think to approach it from the spirit of service and friendship is the way to go about uh, building constructive relationships with legislators when you do, in fact, disagree. But this idea that you're going to go and impose your will upon them and uh, tell them how it's going to be, this this isn't a productive dynamic. We want to be bridge builders. We want to break down the walls of resentment and, and build bridges of dialogue and be constructive. I can tell you that works far more often than it does having a confrontational attitude, per se. Great. Those were some really good practical tips kind of within that mailbag segment, but we also each week have our bricklayer segment. So before we go today, we want to provide you with some more practical tips on how to be a faithful citizen in the public arena. Here is Jason with the bricklayer segment. So uh, really building off our conversation with Dr. David Cloutier this morning, which was, I thought, great about structures of sin and the, oftentimes it's the consumer choices we make, uh, especially with regard to uh, consumption, the economy, the environment. And as l- our listeners probably know, we've developed a translation, really, or a, a practical guide to Pope Francis's encyclical, Laudato Si, on care for our common home. And we call our version Minnesota Our Common Home. How do we translate the principles of that encyclical into a local context? And we built out uh, documents that come as uh, supplements to that Minnesota Our Common Home. And one of them is an ecological examine. What does this mean for me practically in everyday life and how I live? And with Advent just around the corner, the Minnesota Our Common Home ecological examine is a good opportunity to consider the decisions you make, the way you're living, your habits, and how you can better prepare your heart to receive Christ this Christmas. The examine is a prayer uh, in many ways that's similar to one developed by St. Ignatius of Loyola. It's a technique for opening oneself to the guidance of the Holy Spirit and reviewing certain aspects of one's life. 
Many people pray a daily examine, which involves reviewing the events of the day in the presence of God, discovering how God was active throughout the day and where a person was cooperating with God or where he or she was unwilling to cooperate. This version of the exam is intended as a periodic review of your life in light of the teachings of Laudato Si and the call of Pope Francis for ecological conversion. It is recommended as a practice during Lent or Advent of each year to help you overcome temptations, especially during a penitential season, and help you make important changes in your attitudes and actions that will bring your life into greater harmony with God's will. At least that's the modest hope we have for the ecological examine. It's a great walkthrough um, how you're stewarding your faith being a good steward of the gift of your faith, the earth, your body, and the well-being of your neighbor by better understanding where we are at in relationship with God and how we're caring for all of his creation, we can better live in right relationship with others and better advocate for policies that uphold the beauty of God's creation. Again, this year, Advent begins on December 1st, so you have time to order or download a copy of Minnesota Our Common Home Ecological Examine at mncatholic.org slash ourcommonhome. That's all the time we have for today on The Bridge Builder, but remember, you or your organization can become a sponsor of The Bridge Builder. By doing so, you will help others bring the Catholic faith into public life. For more information, contact our producer, Kit Cross, via our email, show at mncatholic.org. Again, show at mncatholic.org for sponsorship opportunities. Listeners, you can also be part of our mailbag segment. Just send any of your questions or comments to show at mncatholic.org or contact us on social media. And remember to catch up on past episodes of The Bridge Builder through your favorite podcast app or mncatholic.org slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross, have a blessed weekend.